Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Robert in the 1976 film Keep My Grave Open, <laughs> Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? Oh, man. Okay, now you have driven a stake through my heart with Robert slash the stable boy and keep my grave over david this was the show that i got my sag card on yeah this is according to imdb this is your one of your earliest credits it's it's the first real credit in that i had to get a professional you know you had to join the union uh the screen actors guild to be in professional films and i had to buy back in the old days david what year was this in what year did you say 1976 76, I had to buy SAG and After were together at that time. So my SAG After card, David, cost $120. Wow. Now, actors who are living today are probably passing out and driving off the road because I think in Los Angeles, <laughs> SAG and After are separate. You have to pay separately for those. I think it's something like three grand or something. I'm, I don't want to misstate. I, I haven't bought my SAG card in many years. But it's a lot of bread to buy a SAG card now. Yeah, that was that – was, and, and David, you should know that a Keep My Grave Open is actually a kind of a cult hit in uh, England. I think it's a it's a cult hit in England, and I had a famous horse monologue, and I was murdered uh, in a shower with a samurai sword. That sounds about right. Uh, it sounds about par <laughs> for the course for a Stephen <laughs> Tobolowsky role. Uh, but it's cool that you got your big break with Keep My Grave Open, and the world of entertainment yes. has never been the same. That is true. Well, Stephen, oh. you last left us with a cliffhanger from Ooh, last week's right. episode. Uh, first of all, to get the maximum enjoyment from this week's episode, we should say people should probably listen to uh, the Zen story, which is episode 48 of the Tobolowsky Files. And as you are sometimes fond of putting it, for the full dose, check out the episode before that, uh, which is The Metamorphic Man, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, now, it all takes place at the same time, and they're all interconnected. Now, in uh, the most recent episode of the Tobolowsky Files prior to this one, you were telling us about how you were on your way to Norway. You want to yeah. care to give us a brief recap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, David, I, I know that, wow, as, as I look back over my life, I am amazed how much easier it is to tell stories of first love and first crisis and even the first loss of a loved one. Because when I was moving into the middle of my life, the telling of stories gets much trickier. Aristotle's rising action wasn't always rising. In my 30s, I found that I was often coming and going at the same time. Nothing was clear or clean or linear. My career was moving forward rapidly and vanishing right before my very eyes. Relationships seemed indispensable and impossible. Love seemed everywhere and nowhere. Everything was possible. Nothing was within reach. Now, when I was little, I always imagined that I would be grown up by the time I was 30. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Being in my 30s was like having a semi-permanent form of jet lag. The thought of buying a plane ticket to Norway to visit director Stein Vinga was one of the craziest things I'd ever done. Or maybe not. Maybe the exotic location and the illogic of the trip would be just the thing I needed to do. I mean, why not? When you've planned so well and so wisely and everything you see around you has turned out so wrong, why not try to do the opposite of what makes sense? In 1987, I was 36 years old. The arc of my life was feeling more like a trapezoid. My relationship with Beth, which I patterned on the plot of a Fred Astaire movie, had mysteriously turned into a Sam Peckinpah movie and collapsed. My career wasn't marching steadily forward like I had hoped. Australian director Bruce Beresford told me it was unlikely I would ever work in films because I was unphotogenic. A few years earlier, I had auditioned for casting director Joel Thurm for the movie Grease. He wanted me to improvise for my audition. I started, and after about 30 seconds, he laughed and said, It's okay, you can stop. We don't need any balding greasers. Ouch. 
Two points describe a straight line, and I didn't like where this line was going. I was 36 years old, and the money I made was mostly coming exclusively from working on projects with Beth. Well, that would certainly end. The only thing in my future that seemed to be promising was maybe getting an earring and going to bartender school. I had never experienced the terrible thing that we call clinical depression. But this time in my life was the closest I came to falling off the edge. When Stein mentioned I should come to Norway, stay with him for a while, and maybe play a mountain troll in his epic film version of Pierre Gint, a door opened. All that was required of me was that I walk through it. And I'm still amazed that I did. I didn't have much money at the time, but I did have something I found to be more valuable. I had nothing to lose. The best thing about having nothing to lose is that no one can take it away from you. I arrived in Oslo about nine in the evening. It was in the middle of May. I experienced that thing they call the midnight sun for the first time. It's hard to describe. It's like asking a magician how he did a trick and he just looks at you and says, that wasn't a trick. It was really magic. The light in May in Norway was real magic. Stein lived across the fjord from Oslo in a town called Neshotend. I thought the name of his town was both quaint and intriguing until I found out that Neshotend meant the nose of a hog. Later I found out that many towns in Norway are named after noses or hogs. I took the 20-minute boat ride across the fjord. The long flight from America in coach seemed to vanish with the cold wind and the waves and the Scandinavian evening, the cloudless sky... It was strange that the world didn't seem smaller to me after this trip, but bigger than I ever imagined. Stein greeted me at the dock. He hugged me and then asked if I'd seen enough of his little country. I said, yes, I should probably go home now before it got too late. And he said, yes, of course, have a good trip back. We'll see you next time. And Stein started to put my bags back on the boat. I grabbed him. We both laughed, headed for the car. Stein's house was very impressive. It was in the middle of a grove of trees. It was beautiful and modern with glass and wood and heated stone floors. He took me to the guest house on his property, which was a little Viking cabin with two single beds and a fireplace. I was rapidly coming to understand that Stein was one of the real celebrities in the Norwegian artistic scene. He had projects running in all directions. Uh, He had just directed a popular production of Hamlet at the Norske Theater. The Norsky was very popular and more avant-garde than the National Theater. He was also having meetings with the conductor of the Geneva Opera, and he was engaged to direct a new production of De Valkyrie. Then there was his film of Peer Gint, which would shoot over a two-year period all across Norway. I was beginning to think I could very easily stay here and restart my career as a mountain troll. Stein and I sat in the kitchen that first night. He pulled out a bottle of something called Gelde. Gelde had the amazing quality of being both highly alcoholic and yet you never got drunk. Now, I've noticed this is a quality reserved only for the most dangerous of beverages. We talked about theater in Los Angeles. We talked about my career in movies, not as an actor, but as a director. Yes, I had just been signed to a three-picture deal directing. It came from the success of my play, which I wrote and directed, called Two Idiots in Hollywood. After about the third glass of Gelde, Stein asked me about Beth. Stein loved Beth's humor and her writing and had been a frequent visitor to our house on the hill. He was unhappy to hear that our relationship was in tatters. He asked me if we'd been to counseling. I said, not really. I went to one shrink who I believe was also connected to a dating service, kind of one-stop shopping, but it all seemed hopeless. Too many hurts had gone back and forth over too long a period of time. The waves were too high. The water was too deep. We were about one metaphor short of becoming a country western song. Stein said, Love is a difficult thing. Sometimes it becomes something else. Sometimes it vanishes. Sometimes it rekindles. I added, and sometimes it burns your house down. I had another shot of Gelda inside. I don't know what to do, Stein. I hate to think of all we had 
is just vanishing, and I can't stand to think of the past, and it's hard for me to see anything ahead of me. Stein looked at me very seriously. Well, remember what Chekhov would have said. In two or three hundred years, life on earth will be beautiful. I know it seems like a long wait now, but that's why God gave us Gelde. Another? Absolutely, I said. This Gelde is smooth, wouldn't you say, Stein? Stein pulled the cork out of the bottle with his teeth. He said, I don't know what you mean by smooth, but if you mean it will get you very drunk, yes, it is smooth, very, very smooth. Stein poured and we toasted. I said, so what about Pierre Ghent? What is a mountain troll? Stein laughed. Well, first, he is hideous. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. Thank you very much for thinking of me. Stein got very intense and said, he is a trickster, very cunning and cagey. He's very old, a sort of magical being. I will take you up to the high peaks of Norway. There is a cliff there that is 1,600 meters high. I'll show it to you. You will appear in a burst of fire. You'll stand on the edge of the mountain and speak to Pierre with the entire earth behind you. Do you know the story? I shook my head while I was trying to imagine how high 1,600 meters was and if I would need to rent an oxygen tank. Stein, I said, from what I remember, Pierre was a wanderer. He goes all over the world? Yes, said Stein. You see, Pierre is a sort of prisoner of many things, but mainly of himself. You offer to make him a troll. You are very charming, and you try to convince him that this will make him free. At the end of the scene, you will come very close to Pierre. You will reach out to touch him, and then you will open your hand, and suddenly a bird will appear and fly away. I said, a bird? Stein repeated, yes. I always want you to do some sort of magic. You open your hand, and you will have a bird. You set it free for Pierre. I said, I have a bird in my hand? Yes, said Stein. You are trying to make Pierre think you could give him his freedom. He turns you down. Later, he's forced to see his past and all of the things he never did. All of the songs he never sung. All of the things he should have built. All the questions he never asked. He sees that he is a prisoner of regret. I think the play is very powerful, very mysterious. I asked what happens to him at the end. Stein came close and whispered, We don't know. In the end, there may or may not be redemption for Pierre, but at least he finds the one he loves. She sings him a lullaby right before he dies. I refilled my glass of Gelda and said, A lullaby is a lot when you think about it. Yes, said Stein. Very few of us get a lullaby. We both sat in silence for a moment. Stein, I should tell you, Anne is coming here. I asked her to come out when she finishes a movie she's working on. Stein raised his eyes in surprise. Anne? Anne Hearn? Yes, I said. Well, she came out a year or so ago. She stayed with us here. She's a very good actress. Yes, she is. I looked at Stein. Stein looked at me and said, is she coming out to visit me or you? I paused and looked for the right words. Both, I think. Stein started grinning. Both? My dear troll, I think we need one more drink. I have no idea how late it was when I finally went to bed, but I was positive I was still sober, even though I had trouble walking a straight line. I slept until a little past noon. I didn't feel guilty because if you count the jet lag, it was still yesterday. When I awoke, Stein was already up and working. He was meeting with the conductor of the Geneva Opera. Stein asked me to sit in on the meeting and listen. I said, well, I wasn't really that interested because I wasn't a fan of opera. The conductor laughed and said, join the crowd. You just don't know opera well enough. He started to explain the story of the ring cycle. And I have to admit... The story was compelling. It was another reminder of how a little knowledge may be a dangerous thing, but it's still better than no knowledge at all. We watched scenes from another production on video, and now I was able to follow the story and was completely engrossed. 
We watched for two more hours before I felt I had to go back to bed to prepare for another night of heavy drinking. Which there was. More Gelde. This evening, Stein's wife, Kari, joined us. I met Kari when she came to America to play Jesus in Stein's production of Barabbas. Kari told me about the production of Hamlet she was doing. She was playing Gertrude, Hamlet's mother. She told me the production was the sensation of Norway. Now, considering that Norway was a country of four million people, three million of which lived on sheep farms, I figured this wasn't saying much. But then again, Stein directed it, which says it had the possibility of being the greatest production of all time. Kari said I would have to come see the play. Stein said, yes, yes, certainly, I will get you a ticket. Then the two of them started talking in Norwegian to each other. They stopped, looked at me. I smiled. Then they started talking in Norwegian again. My anxiety level was rising despite the extreme sobriety I was feeling from the several shots of Gelde. I said, is something wrong? Stein shook his head and said, no, no, nothing wrong. We were just thinking we may need you for a project. Pause. A project? Wow, this sounded great. Maybe I could stay in Norway and become an expatriate actor working with Stein. There could be worse fates. I jumped on board. I said, yes, Stein, yes. I will do anything. I will even learn Norwegian if I have to. You know, once I learned Spanish in one hour to do children's theater in America. Of course, I was fired after the first performance when I accidentally said something obscene. But I could learn Norwegian if you need me to. Stein looked at me with a bit of confusion and said, no, no, no. You don't have to learn the Norwegian. Stein held up the empty liquor bottle. This is our last bottle of Gelde. We may need you to buy some alcohol for us. I was disappointed. I said, you, you want me to make a beer run? Stein says, it's a bigger job than that. We're having a party for the Hamlet cast here in a few days, and we will need to buy beer, wine, whatever they got, and of course another case of Gelde. I stared at Stein, still not really comprehending. Stein continued, Stephen, Norway is a very strange country. People are fucking here constantly. No one cares. That's not a problem. But drinking is another matter. It is frowned upon. It is considered a very, very bad thing. You could blame the Lutheran church. I said, so you want me to drive over to the liquor store? Stein and Kari both corrected me emphatically. No, 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 not here. We have to drive to a different town. Kari and I have reputations. You don't. No one expects anything of Americans. You could go into a liquor store and buy alcohol. No one would care. It wasn't the job I was expecting, but it was a job I knew I could do well. I agreed. The next day, we started out early in the direction of a town called Honifus, where there was a large state-run liquor store. Stein told me Honifus meant chicken stream which was positively poetic compared to Nose of a Hog, where Stein lived. I appreciated the consistency of the barnyard theme. In the car, Kari was running over the shopping list in her head. She said, Stephen, what do you think we should get? I said, well, Kari, I did all the shopping at our big parties up on the hill in Los Angeles. How many people do you expect? She said, maybe 12 from the cast, maybe 18. I said, well, that should be easy. You figure maybe someone is going to bring someone else. I think maybe a couple cases of red, a couple cases of white should do it. Kari turned pale and started to panic. Stephen, are you crazy? These are actors, Norwegian actors. That will never do. I said, well, Kari, I'm not sure. What do you think we need? She said, a case, a case each at least. I said, Kari, that's a lot of wine. It's okay. I know what I'm talking about. We arrived at the liquor store. It looked like Hitler's bunker. It was a gray cinder block building with barbed wire around the top. The sides had perimeter lights and mounted cameras. It was daunting. All I could say was, wow. Stein spoke as if he knew there was danger ahead. Yes, I know. It's scary. The state is very strict about alcohol. If we were buying porno, it would be easy. You know what we're getting? I glanced at Kari's list. Everything, I think. Stein nodded. That's good. And don't forget the Gelde. I walked into the store. I was the only customer. There were two workers behind the counter that were built like Marines on the Mexican border. They eyed me suspiciously. I said, hello, um, I'm from America. 
I heard I could buy some alcohol here. The man behind the counter broke into a huge smile and nodded. Yes, yes, of course. What do you need? I said, let's see, let's see, uh, maybe um, 12 cases of wine, uh, 12 red, 12 white, a case of vodka, a couple cases of beer, case of cognac. Uh, Do you have any gelde? The man nodded and said, I think we have one case left. I said, I'll take it. We could have used a forklift. Thank God the Norwegian government believes in making sure everyone has a meaningful job. A team of workers came running out of the back and formed a human chain loading the liquor into Stein's car. His suspension groaned with each added case. When they were finished, we were filled to the roof with bottles. We rattled as we drove home. After we unloaded, Stein told me he got me a ticket for Hamlet that afternoon. On the way to the theater, I asked Stein if the production was going to be in English or Norwegian. He said, Norwegian, of course. We are in Norway. I've cast an Eskimo as Hamlet. He doesn't speak much English. I asked, a real Eskimo? Stein says, yes, from the very top of the world, North Cape. He eats whale blubber and lives in darkness half the year. His name is Bjorn Sundqvist. I asked, can he act? Stein and Kari just turned and stared at me. Stein's head turned red as he said quietly, Yes, Stephen, he can act. He is quite good. You know the play, don't you? I said, Yes, Stein. I know Hamlet. I know the play. He said, So pretend it's like opera, just like the Valkyrie. If we tell the story right, you should understand. We arrived at the Norske Theater to see Stein's Hamlet. What can I say? How can I begin? As I mentioned, theater is the art that vanishes. You can't look at a production photo of a play and say, oh yeah, yeah, that's when the guy said to be or not to be. It doesn't work that way. All you have left of a theatrical performance is the memory of how you were changed. My expectations were all over the map. With Stein, anything was possible. I mean, there could be aircraft, animals, chainsaws. The first factual thing I can tell you is that Stein opted not to do the play in the theater. I was ushered into what looked like a scene shop with temporary risers set up on three sides, making a little playing space in the middle. The stage area, if you want to call it that, was quite small, maybe a 20-foot square with a huge metal wall across the back of the stage. I snuggled into my little metal folding chair, thinking Stein was doing a little studio production of what could be the most famous play ever written, with an Eskimo in the lead, in Norwegian. Okay, this could be a long afternoon. The lights started to dim, the audience got quiet, and then all hell broke loose. A single light came up on stage, and the ghost of Hamlet's father appeared, a middle-aged, blonde, balding man in a white tuxedo sliding silently along the metal wall at the back of the stage with a look of terror on his face. Now, if you're scratching your heads and pulling out your Shakespeare's, don't worry. This moment is not in the play as written. Stein added it. The audience laughed uncomfortably at the oddity of the ghost's appearance. I was smirking, thinking that In his white tuxedo, he was just one parachute away from looking exactly like me and Barabbas. The audience continued to giggle a little, which only seemed to upset the ghost more, and he looked back at us with increasing horror. The ghost opened his mouth to speak. There was no sound. But then suddenly the entire room shook. The building shook. There seemed to be an earthquake, and all the laughter stopped. The people in the audience looked around in alarm, getting ready to head for the nearest exit. And we soon realized that the sound was coming from the gigantic metal wall that ran across the back of the playing space. It was moving. It was not a wall after all. It was a huge vertical door, over a 100 feet long, over 50 feet high. Of course, these were the loading doors for the scene shop. That's why Stein staged the play here in the first place. The rumbling came from the engines under the floor to raise the door. The metal wall stopped after it lifted only about three feet off the ground, and behind the wall, you could see men's legs walking around, men in costume. And then we realized the play had started on the other side of the wall. 
We could barely hear the lines. Our focus was still on the ghosts, staring at us in dread only a few feet away. Side note, for those of you who are not familiar with the play, the first scene of Hamlet happens on the battlements of the castle in Denmark. Soldiers are commenting that they fear the castle is haunted. Some say there's talk that the ghost of Hamlet's father has been seen walking here at this time and hour of the night. In Stein's production, we could only see legs moving on the other side of the metal wall. And then in one quick movement, the ghost ducks under the wall. The dialogue stops and now screams come from the men on the other side. From the audience, all we could see were the legs of soldiers running around on the other side of the wall, running in a panic around the white tuxedo pants legs of the ghost. And then in an equally sudden move, the ghost comes back to our side of the wall. He tries to scream, but once again, no sound can come out. His face is filled with terror with his encounter with the other side. And we are changed. In a poetic flash of brilliance, Stein did what only the theater can do. He took us on a journey to the other side of death and back again. He took what's usually an expository opening scene and turned it into a first-person account from the viewpoint of the ghost. The opening of the play became one of humor, then terror, and then wonder. And the wonder didn't stop there. As the ghost slid back along the wall for a merciful respite off stage, the building shook again. The back wall began to rise. The lights came up to reveal a gigantic playing space over a hundred feet wide and deep behind the wall. And now we're thrown into the decadent court of Denmark. The lights rise to catch Kari as Hamlet's mother and King Claudius, Hamlet's uncle, both naked having sex in a hot tub on stage. The courtiers are laughing and drinking champagne. Some are snorting coke, and I begin to realize this is not going to be your grandfather's Hamlet. Hamlet is played by Bjorn, our Eskimo, sat quietly on the far side of the stage staring at the audience. After his casual opening banter with his mother and uncle, made uncasual by the fact that they're completely naked, getting out of a hot tub, putting on bathrobes, the stage cleared, and Bjorn was alone. He walked straight toward us. He stopped a few feet away, and now with the gigantic empty space behind him, he almost whispers the mournful opening monologue, which I knew was, Oh, that this too-too solid flesh would melt, thaw, resolve itself into a dew. I couldn't breathe. Bjorn never raised his voice. He didn't move. He fixed us with a quiet intensity and resolution. I noticed all the audience was leaning forward. Through a magic only the theater provides and Bjorn's simple truthful playing, we were unified by his anguish and we were brothers by the time he says his final fateful lines, This is not nor can I come to good, but break my heart for I must hold my tongue. It was the power of the theater revealed. I had accidentally involved myself with a scientific experiment on the effect of theatrical metaphor on the human soul. By the fact that the play was performed in Norwegian, I was able to see clearly that theater, or at least Shakespeare, speaks in a language that transcends the written word. Stein was right. If you tell the story right, they will understand. But the real question is, what story? What is the real metaphor saying? Stein's Hamlet was more than the greatest theatrical experience I've ever had. It changed me forever. It was beyond imagination. And now it's gone. Like all theater. Maybe that's part of the key. Perhaps the magic of theater comes from the fact that it is so impermanent. It pretends to be a story that lives on the surface of words and truthful playing, but now I was suspecting its power comes from the fact that the real story is born in a deeper place a place I can only call the world of possibility. It's the place that reminds us that something can come from nothing and return again. In the car on the way home that night, I was gushing to Stein and Kari about how brilliant I thought the production was. We crossed the fjord on the boat in that strange magical light and were silent except for the sound of the engines and the water and the wind. In that moment, I realized why I came on this trip. I was being taught that the world of possibility is real. It exists silently everywhere we go, 
and becomes visible only when we see that tomorrow means more than yesterday. It was the day of the Hamlet cast party at Stein's house. I was carrying cases of wine and depositing them around the living room like fueling stations at the Daytona 500. Stein came in and said, Stephen, I got a message that Miss Anne has left Heathrow. Really, I said, when does her flight get in? Stein looked at his watch. Maybe now, I think. It was an old message. I was suddenly filled with nervous energy. Stein was trying to button his shirt, and he added distractedly, Don't worry, she said she'd call when she gets here in Oslo. I hurried with separating the reds from the whites. I arranged about eight bottles of vodka in an artistic cluster on one of the tables in the living room. I put out beer, I put out cognac, a mountain of paper cups. I heard the front door open and Norwegian greetings. It was Bjorn. Kari ran over and kissed him. She brought him over to me and introduced us. She told him I was an actor from America. She told him I had done plays with Stein in Los Angeles and had seen Hamlet. (laughs) And that is the only introduction that was needed. He smiled and shook my hand warmly. Kari asked if he wanted something to drink. Bjorn looked around and did a double take when he saw the table with the mountain of vodka. He grabbed a cup and started pouring and the party had officially begun. Kari was putting out some snacks that looked like something you'd feed the seals at the zoo. I assumed these snacks were highly Norwegian in origin. I learned long ago not to eat snacks in other countries. People usually like to eat things at parties that they remembered fondly from their childhood, which is not always a good recommendation to the uninitiated digestive tract. In Norway, they had a dish called lutefisk, which seemed to be some sort of fish marinated in a barrel of kerosene for a couple years and served raw. I think people used to eat it in the year 900 when they were starving. They kept the tradition alive to honor the near-death experience. Kari started putting something out that looked like animal droppings. I asked what it was. Kari said, Oh, Stephen, this is homemade goat cheese. You must try it. You can only eat it here in Norway. It's not exported. I asked, Why? Is that because of health codes? Kari said, What? I said, the cheese. You can't export it because it violates some sort of international law. It has live worms in it or it's held together with some kind of unpasteurized saliva. What? What's wrong with it? Kari looked at me confused and said, Stephen, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not exported because it is so good if anyone tasted it, they would have to move here. And we like our population small. You must try it. Bjorn was already on his second vodka and he walked over amused by the conversation. He leaned in and put his arm on my shoulder. He smiled mischievously and in unsteady English said, Try it. The gauntlet had been thrown. I screwed my courage to the stinking place and cut off some of the goat cheese. It was dark brown in color. It had the texture of wax and the aroma of mud. I put a piece in my mouth with Bjorn and Kari watching with great delight. I began to chew... Cut to a shot of my brain exploding. My mouth erupted in happiness. My tongue could not figure out if I was eating filet mignon or molten chocolate. I started screaming, oh my God, my God, this is so good. This could be the best thing I've ever tasted. Stein stuck his head in the room to see what all the commotion was about. He spoke in Norwegian to Kari. She said something in Norwegian back to Stein. Bjorn pointed to my plate and added his two cents. Stein nodded and said, Stephen, 
Would you like more cheese, or would you like to come to the docks? Miss Anne is on her way. I started cutting some pieces of cheese. <laughs> Stein laughed and said, Here is a real gentleman. He chooses cheese over the girl. I said, Hey, hey, hey. I'm just putting them in my pocket for the trip to the boat. Stein said, Now you know why we stay in this little country where there is so little sun. You will probably have to move here now. I said, Maybe I will after Pierre Ghent. That caught Bjorn's ear. He spoke to Stein in Norwegian. Stein answered him back. Bjorn looked at me and hugged me. So, you will be our troll? I nodded. I would love it if it was possible. Now Bjorn and I were united by the one true way all actors are, by a project. Bjorn got a plastic cup for me. We toast Pierre Gint. And we did. We drank. Stein interrupted. Stephen, we must go. There'll be more vodka and cheese later, but we can't keep our Anne waiting. We left for the dock. It was a brilliant day. The sun was bright, the wind was whipping around us, the boat was pulling in. Anne appeared on the deck and waved at us. I almost cried, seeing her face in this strange land thousands of miles from her home. She ran off the boat and gave Stein a huge hug and a kiss. Stein lifted her up in the air like a doll. Anne came back down to earth and gave me a hug. <laughs> we grabbed her luggage. We were off to the house. In the car, I told her rapidly about Hamlet and the party and the goat cheese. She never got a word in edgewise. We got back to Stein's, and the festivities were in full swing. Most of the Hamlet cast had arrived and were laughing and toasting everything that moved. Anne and I shared in the fun. I talked to Bjorn about his performance and what it was like living in North Cape, to which he could only reply, Dark. Anne was eagerly asking questions about Hamlet, to which I could only say, You have to see it, you have to see it, you have to see it to believe it. After about an hour of goat cheese and vodka, Anne and I were both hit with a wave of exhaustion. I went up to Stein and told him we had to excuse ourselves for a little bit. He said, Relax, go. This is a Norwegian party. It will probably go on all night. Anne and I went back to the Viking cabin and fell asleep on our single beds. We were in a goat cheese coma for about two hours. We woke up and decided to rejoin the party. We crossed back over the yard toward the main house, but on my way over, I was struck by how quiet everything had become. I walked in the back door, and I couldn't believe what I saw. There were bodies everywhere. The living room was a wreck. Bjorn was laying face down on the floor near the back door. King Claudius was slumped in the corner. It looked like Anne and I just happened to take a nap during a mass murder. Stein came staggering out of the kitchen. He was as drunk as I've seen any man who was still able to stand. He mumbled, I think the party is over. I said, but Stein, we were only asleep for a couple of hours. Stein shook his head and gestured, over. I looked over at the shambles that was Stein's house. I, I said, I thought we would come back and get a little glass of wine, a nightcap. Stein gestured with a finger across his throat. Gone. I said, vodka? Stein shook his head. Long gone. I said, is there anything left? Stein made a face and a hand gesture which translated into, you snooze, you lose. Stein looked across the sea of bodies. Kari was on the floor near the cheese table. Ophelia was passed out on the couch, snoring. Then something caught Stein's eye. He called out, wait! His eyes refocused. He started walking carefully across the room, stepping over the bodies. It looked like he was a Norwegian hunter sneaking up on a caribou. He gestured for Anne and I to join him. We started making our way through the comatose Hamlet cast to where Stein was pointing. He looked up at me and smiled weakly. Amazing. Anne and I came around the dining table, and there, amidst the clutter of plates and empty plastic cups, was a bottle of Camus cognac that was only half empty. We sat at the table and passed the bottle around. I can't believe it, Stein. How do you people survive? A party like this would kill the average person from L.A. Stein nodded. Yes, I know. We train for this from when we are very young. It builds our stamina. We will have another performance of the play tomorrow and everyone will be fine. I took a swig of the Camus and passed the bottle over to Anne. Maybe it's the cold. Stein considered this. Yes, maybe. The cold makes us strong. Over the next few days, I saw Hamlet again with Anne. She was equally amazed. 
we saw another play that was equally amazing, but for different reasons. It was one of those plays that made you happy the theater can instantaneously vanish. It featured people dressed as sardines performing in a fish processing factory. In downtown Oslo, we saw the Turing Company, which could only be described as the gayest staging of guys and dolls that could be imagined, with dancing gangsters in silver tights with butterfly wings. One Sunday morning, Anne and I finally felt we were out of the grasp of a terminal jet lag. Stein asked us what we wanted to do. I said it might be interesting to see what church is like in Norway. Maybe we could go to a service. Stein bit his lip and said, yes, of course. I didn't really have my Sunday go-to-meeting attire, but I did the best I could. I put on my black, hard-soled leather shoes, a white shirt, a very nice leather jacket. I looked respectable. We loaded into Stein's car. I thought Stein would head for the docks and the now-familiar boat ride across the fjord to downtown Oslo, but Stein went off in a different direction. We started going through forests, past mountains, past giant green fjords, which ran in canyons beside the road on their way to the sea. After a considerable drive, we stopped. Stein said, follow me. We walked along a dirt path to a rock promontory looking out over rushing, icy green waters. On the edge of the cliff, we saw a strange wooden building carved to look like a dragon. Stein said, here, here is a church, Norwegian church. I said, you're kidding. Stein said, no, this is one of the early Christian churches. It was built around the year 1000. This used to be a powerful spot in prehistoric times. Pagans had a temple here. They even may have performed sacrifices at this very place. The early Christians came and said, We will have none of that. And they chased the pagans away and burned down their temple. They built their church on the same spot. But as you see, as they were building, the church began to change. It became a dragon. This was not what the Christians planned. The pagan emerged. Sometimes where you are is stronger than what you do. We walked through the empty stave church, then got back in the car and continued up the road. After a bit of driving, the trees were starting to give way to snow. Lots of snow. I asked Stein, where are we going? He said, you will see. We're almost there. He pulled his car off the road and he said, here we are. Follow me. Stein started up the trail. Anne and I followed. I said, Stein, I don't really have hiking clothes on. I was dressed for going to church. Without looking back, Stein said, you've already been to church. This is another place. We kept marching up the trail. I occasionally slipped on the wet rocks in my black leather shoes. I looked back at Anne, who was part mountain goat anyway, and she just raised her eyebrows. We kept marching up for over an hour, for over two hours. I got winded and needed to stop. Stein said, not yet. There's a place to rest up ahead. We kept going. For four hours, we hiked upwards. We finally stopped at a little grassy area, and we sat amidst the snow, the ice, and the rock. We were surrounded by the constant sound of rushing water. Stein opened up his knapsack and pulled out some goat cheese and a knife. Here, he said, here is some of your favorite cheese, and I also brought some sheep sausage. Stein gave us a little snack of sausage and cheese on buttered bread. He pulled out a bottle of water. We sat, drank. The sun felt so hot on my black Aberdeen slacks. I took my leather coat off, made a pillow of it, and fell asleep on the grass with Anne. I'm not sure how long Stein let us nap, but soon he was saying, Come on, come on, we must keep going. We were up and back on the trail. We kept climbing up the narrow mountain trails, higher and higher. We kept heading toward the sound of the rushing water. We came around a bend. The trail vanished under a frozen stream that formed a frozen waterfall that plunged off the edge of the mountain. Upon closer examination, I could see that only the surface of the stream was frozen. Water was still flowing rapidly underneath the ice. Stein said, We have to cross here. I think the ice is still strong enough to hold us. I will go first. We started across the frozen top of the falls. Our feet broke through the top surface of the ice. Freezing water soaked my Sunday shoes. I looked down and saw the water rushing under my feet, running over the edge of the cliff a few yards away. Stein, I said, can we do this? The ice is breaking. Stein kept going across the frozen falls. It is late in the season, but the ice will still hold us. Don't look down. 
We made it to the other side. We stopped and looked over the edge. Stein, how far down does the waterfall go? Stein did some calculation in Norwegian and then metric conversion in American and said, about a thousand feet. My heart was pounding. I said, Stein, I'm not kidding. I'm not dressed for mountain climbing. I don't know how we're going to get back. Stein says, we get back the same way we came. We're almost to the top. After a total of six hours of climbing, we finally reached the top of the mountain. The sun was high in the sky. It was bright and hot and cold at the same time. Stein walked to the edge and turned back to Anne and me and said, Here we are. Here is what I wanted to show you. Look at the view from the mountain. I walked forward as close to the edge as I dared, and there was the entire earth before me. There was a giant range of snow-covered mountains. There were lakes that shone like mirrors and diamonds, and farther off there were forests. And there was more. From here I could see the curve of the earth. I could see where the sky was turning from blue to dark blue and the beginning of space. I could see the border of everything and nothing. Stein turned to me and said, My friend, this is the place I told you about, where I would shoot your scenes in Pier Ghent. But I am afraid I brought you here on false pretenses. The truth is, there may be no Pier Ghent. I looked at Stein. He continued, I don't know if the project will happen or not. And even if it happens, I don't think it would be possible to fly you over from America. I stood in silence as Stein walked along the edge of the world. Stephen, you will forgive me. We've only known each other for three years. But the last time we worked together in Los Angeles, I could see that you had changed. You had become so sad. I needed to find a way to get you here to show you this place. And I knew the only way I could do that was to tell you there was a part for you. That was why I said you could play the mountain troll. Love is a very funny thing. It changes very often before our eyes. Or just like the church we saw, it becomes something we never planned to build. I don't know what will happen in your life. I don't know what will happen between you and Beth, or with you and Anne. But I do know in time, the pain you feel will vanish, and you will only remember this day and this place, and you'll say, I climbed the mountain. One day, in Sunday school clothes, Stein took me up, and we climbed the mountain, and we saw the world. My eyes burned with tears as I looked out over everything below. It was filled with beauty and danger. It was all there. We spent a few more minutes on the peak before we headed down again. Now, it's 24 years later. 2011. I know some of the facts that time eventually reveals. In 1987, Beth and I ended our relationship. Two years later, I married Anne and we started a family. I was never in Pier Ghent. In fact, Stein never directed Pier Ghent. I never got my three-picture movie deal because the company we signed went bankrupt and dissolved before my first movie was even released. But more importantly, Stein was right. The pain of those years has fallen away, but I have never forgotten the day when I climbed the mountain and saw the world. And somewhere in the distance, between everything and nothing... A dear friend showed me the future. That was A View from the Mountain, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, we got some big news. We got some big news to announce today on The Tobolowsky Files, and that is that Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, the very excellent 
storytelling movie, which inspired this show altogether, is now available for free <laughs> to view by all uh, people that are living in the United States currently. And you can view Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party by going to Hulu.com uh, and just type in Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party and there it is. Uh, and I believe if you just go there from any computer, you can watch the whole thing with commercials. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that if you are a Hulu Plus member, you can see it for free. Uh, I'm sorry, with no commercials, I should say. So uh, that is really cool to be able to view. And I think in the first 10 minutes of that movie, you'll be totally hooked. And it's very cool to see Stephen Tobolowsky tell a story uh, on on screen as opposed to just through your earphones. So I'd, hi- I'd highly encourage it. And uh, yeah, that's our big announcement for this week. It, it, it was a great thing because uh, the head of, you know, we didn't approach Hulu. Hulu approached us and they had said that they had loved the movie and were going to, wanted to know if they could upload it. Is that what you call it, the technical term? So it's thrilling for us. It's wonderful to have that outlet. And we thank everybody at Hulu for making it possible. I think the technical term is putting it into the magic box. <laughs> uh, and by magic right. box, I'm referring to what other people call computers. So Yes. Well, anyway, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. The Tobolowsky Files is written and performed by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, produced and edited by me, David Chen, with special thanks to Jeff Hansen from KUOW 94.9 in Seattle, Washington, as well as to our interns, Brandon and Andrew, who helped to make this show possible. Stephen, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? I think a, a good place, a unique kind of thing, is Kendall had asked me to write a story for them that was not a part of the Tobolowsky file. So if you go to stephentobolowsky.com, you can get uh, Cautionary Tales, a Kindle single. And uh, I think, David, it plays on anything. You don't have to have a Kindle, you right? You can read it on you... your Kindle, your iPad, your iPhone, your BlackBerry, your Android, whatever you want. You can read right. uh, Stephen's new story. And you can find every episode of The Tobolowski Files at tobolowskifiles.com. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you later. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>